0: If you have a Bible, please take it and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I I will say to you this morning that the sermon title and sermon text in your bulletin is wrong. Um, That's no one's fault but my own. Um, As I got into the text this week, I realized that I wanted to go in a different direction and not be able to preach all the verses I had hoped to, there was just too much here, and so we're looking this morning at Romans 8, the title of this morning's message is, The Spirit Intercedes in Our Weakness, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 26 and 27, Romans 8 verses 26 and 27. There are certain mysteries, seeming paradoxes in the Bible, that as Christians we can't fully wrap our minds around, aren't there? There are things that we can't fully explain, things that are actually quite difficult even for us to understand, I think that you would agree. And yet we don't in any way, as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, believe that these mysteries, these seeming paradoxes that we find in Scripture are contradictions. In fact, that something can be a mystery and yet, not be a contradiction or to say it another way the Bible contains mysteries but the Bible contains no contradictions and listen we we must be okay with that we have to be able as Christians to to sit with that if we're going to be those who faithfully and rightly understand and interpret the Bible. A contradiction says something is logically impossible, right? Like something is and is not at the same time. That's a contradiction. While on the other hand, a mystery or a, a paradox says that while something may appear to be or may seem to be a contradiction, there are simply things that we don't know, there are things that we don't see, there are things that we cannot understand, but they are still true. So we believe them to be true, but we don't understand how or why they are true, right? Take for example the doctrine of the Trinity. Which says that our God exists as one God in three distinct persons Father, Son, and Spirit. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It sounds to be contradictory, but upon closer investigation, rather, what you see is, is actually it's a mystery. Because we aren't saying there's one God and three gods, we're saying there's one God who exists in three persons. Now, how does all of that work together? I don't know. It's a mystery. Or take this one for example, we believe that God is not the author of sin. In fact, we believe that he tempts no one to sin, James chapter 1 tells us, and yet the Bible is clear that God providentially allows and ordains and even plans suffering and trials and sins in our lives for his own good purposes. He wills that Satan exists. He wills that sin exists, but he is in no way the author of it. Now, how does that work? I have no idea. It's a mystery. And amazingly, we find both of these mysteries in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. We find both of these mysteries that I've just mentioned here. In fact, we find them together. We find the marvelous mystery of the Trinity and the perplexing providence of God. Here's what I mean. Notice in verses 26 and 27, we see that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one who indwells each and every believer, who is indwelling you right now, Christian, is the same Spirit, according to verses 26 and 27, who is also interceding for you, who is praying to God the Father for you. Verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints According to the will of God. So consider that for a moment. This is God praying to God. This is God praying to God that he would do the will of God. How does that work? (laughs) It's a mystery, right? Or verse 28, look there where we see the perplexing providence of God, don't we? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, that God, notice, somehow providentially governs the lives of His children. In fact, He orchestrates all things in such a way that He is able to take all of the sin and all of the sufferings and all of the trials and all the evil which he himself has allowed and ordained and purposed and planned in your life, and in some mysteriously perplexing way, without being the author of sin, he is able to use all of those things in your life for his own good and sovereign purposes. For your good and for his glory. Tell me how in the world that happens. I have no idea. It's a mystery. So needless to say, this section of Romans 8, it's deep. It's weighty, is it not? There are mysteries here. There are perplexities here that we can't fully grasp, that we can't fully understand. But surprisingly, surprisingly, the Apostle Paul actually intends for these verses this morning to have a different effect on us. In fact, rather than being written to confuse us or perplex us or cause us to scratch our heads, these verses this morning are written to encourage us. They're written to strengthen us. They're written to give us rock-solid hope. And that's what Paul wants to do this morning. He wants these verses to help you, Christian, in the midst of your suffering and your weakness and your pain and your trials. And I confess to you that I found myself this past week desperately needing these verses. And perhaps you need them today as well. Let's read them together. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, I'd invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read, actually, through verse 30, although we'll just look at verses 26 and 27. Beginning in verse 26, the word of the Lord says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated this morning. Well in his commentary on the book of Romans, John Murray, he proposes that this section, verses 18, really, all the way to verse 30, of chapter eight. They're actually intended by Paul to function as three helps, three supports, three encouragements for what he has just said in verse 17, namely that we must suffer with Christ. Help number one, he says, is verses 18 to 25 that we looked at last week. Help number two is verses 26 and 27, as we'll see this morning. And then help number three is verses 28 to 30. So in other words, this section, verses 18 to 30, are intended by the Apostle Paul to give us hope, to be a help to us, to be an encouragement to us as you and I face the sufferings, Paul says, that we are to endure in this life. Look back at verse 17. Notice back there, Paul says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So verse 17, a glory, glory awaits you, Christian. Eternal glory is awaiting you. You and I, as believers in Christ, children of God, we have this amazing, glorious future inheritance awaiting us, don't we? I mean, we get God in perfect fellowship forever. We get everything that Christ gets as co-heirs with him. We get the new heavens and new earth as our eternal playground. We get not only that, these glorified perfect bodies. We get all of this. Notice verse 17. We will be glorified with him. However, verse 17, we also saw, if you remember, that the pathway to this glory, it comes to us, Paul says, only through our suffering provided, he says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if we want to share in this future glory, then we also must participate in these present sufferings. And so we suffer with Christ, meaning we suffer while hoping in Christ. We suffer while trusting in Christ as we're looking to this future glory that's awaiting us. And We also said last week, remember, that these sufferings that Paul is describing in verse 17 and 18, these sufferings are really any and every kind of suffering that you might experience in this life as a Christian. Verse 18, notice, it is the sufferings, Paul says, of this present time. So, in other words, we suffer in this life because we live in a world groaning under the effects of sin groaning under the curse of sin. The world has been, Paul says in verse 20, notice, subjected to futility. It, it's, it's broken, this world is. It's, it's decaying. It's, it's malfunctioning. Things aren't working like they're supposed to work, like God created them to and intended them to. And therefore, we now experience difficulty in this life, devastation, disorder, disaster, disease, death, And this is all the result of living in a cursed and fallen world, in a broken world, Paul says. So, how does Paul give us hope in the midst of our suffering? What what kind of encouragements does he want to give here? So that you and I will be able to say, it's worth it. It's worth it to suffer with Christ. And there are three of them. Three helps, three encouragements he gives us here in verses 18 to 30 in the midst of our suffering. Help number one came as we saw last week. Look there. Help number one in verse 18 where Paul, remember, he contrasts the present suffering we endure now with this future glory. right? And he said that our suffering now is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us verse 18 for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us christian your suffering in this life paul says it's light it's momentary it's brief it's dust on the scales compared to the eternal glory that is awaiting you and creation itself's longing for that glory to be renewed and re- be revealed Verses 19 to 22, and we are longing for that glory as well, aren't we? Verses 23 to 25. We're longing for this future glory. And that's the first encouragement he gave us, we saw last week, to to help us as we suffer. And so now, Paul gives us two more helps to strengthen us in suffering. So help number one came in verses 18 to 25. Can't compare, so keep hoping, keep looking. Then help number two Notice verses 26 and 27. That God helps us in our suffering by the Spirit interceding for us. The Spirit, he says, is given to help us in our weakness by interceding on our behalf. And then help number three we'll see in verses 28 to 30 where God helps us in our suffering by reminding us and reassuring us and convincing us that all of these things are working together for our good according to his sovereign plans and purposes. So we're going to look at another help this morning. We're going to look at help number two, verses 26 and 27, and we'll look at help number three next time. I wanted to go further, but I just couldn't. There's too much here, and so Lord willing, next week we'll deal with words like foreknowledge and predestination, okay? So, this morning, I'm asking the Lord to use verses 26 and 27 to encourage you and to strengthen you, to strengthen us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our weakness, and is this not timely for many of us? And if you're not here, you will be here. And my job is to help prepare you to suffer. And so God wants to help us in our suffering. How? Here's how. By the Spirit of God, interceding for us by the spirit of God interceding for us look there verses 26 and 27 we see Paul shows us now yet another amazing thing that the spirit does an incredible ministry of the spirit to us and in fact it's one that I think perhaps is often overlooked It's often maybe even underappreciated. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible where we actually see this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Notice what else the Spirit does for us, Paul says in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, we've seen a lot of things that the Spirit does in chapter 8, haven't we? I mean, the Spirit is mentioned actually more in chapter 8 of Romans than it is in chapters 1 to 7 and in chapters 9 to 16 combined. So, this chapter is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we've seen it, haven't we? Verse 2, look back. We've seen that he sets us free from the power of sin and death. You can write these down. Verse 4, he enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law by writing it on our hearts. Verse 6, He gives us life and peace. Verse 9, He comes to dwell in us. And verse 11, that same spirit that dwells in us is also the one who will one day raise us from the dead. But meanwhile, verses 13 and 14, He is now enabling us, He's leading us to, to put sin to death in our lives. Verse 15, he's bearing witness in us that we are children of God and so assuring us we're God's children. And then last week we saw, verse 23, he is also, Paul says, a a foretaste. He's the first fruits given to us guaranteeing our final salvation. That's all what the Spirit does. And now we see another ministry, another work. Verse 26, he helps us in our weakness. So, I want to ask three questions of these verses. Here they are. Number one, why do we need the Spirit's help? Number two, how does he help us? And then number three, why does this matter? Why do we need his help? How does he help us? And why should it matter to me? Because we're going to see that this is, this is strange. This is kind of mysterious, what, what, he's, what he's doing for us. And so... How do we take that and then apply that to our lives? So question number one, why do we need the Spirit's help? Look there, verse 26. Notice Paul begins with that word, likewise. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And that's an important word. Why? Well, because what he's doing is he is connecting us back to what he's just said in verses 18 to 25. This word, likewise, it could also be translated in the same way. So, in the same way as what, Paul? Well, reaching back, look back to verses 18 to 25, we saw that Paul, as I mentioned, is helping us, isn't he? He's, he's helping us to endure suffering in this life. How? By reminding of this hope that we have, this glorious inheritance. And it's this hope, Paul says that is sustaining the Christian in and through their suffering. And so now, in verse 26, Paul says, likewise, meaning in the same way that this future hope is sustaining you, Christian, in your suffering, likewise, so too, the Spirit is also given to you to help sustain you in your suffering. To help you. And it's interesting that that word help there, verse 26, it's only used one other place in the New Testament. And it means, it means that something is, is too great. It means that something is, is too difficult for you. In fact, the, the only other place it's found actually is in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where if you remember the story of Mary and Martha. Remember where Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus, right where she should be, and Martha is what? She's busy about the work of the house. And, and, and if you remember, Martha gets frustrated with her sister, and she, uh, Mary, and she, she says to Jesus in Luke chapter 10 verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Same word. In other words, Lord, my hands are full. Lord, this is too much for me. This is too difficult for me. I I can't do this on my own. I need some help. And in the same way, verse 26, Paul says, the Spirit is given to you, Christian, in order to help you in your suffering when it is too much for you. Why? Why do we need His help? Well, notice, Paul says, because, here's why we need His help, we are weak, Verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're weak. Do you feel weak this morning? Now what is this weakness? How how are we weak? Well, I think it's the same weakness that Paul has just been describing in verses 18 to 25. This is the weakness, I think, of groaning in a fallen world. This is the weakness of living in a world that, that, that's full of misery and full of futility, full of suffering, full of decay. It, it's, it's the weakness, I think, of our bodies that are yet to be redeemed, as he says in verse 23. So, so this is our, our human brokenness. This is our human frailty. This is, this is our shortcoming. It's our ignorances, it's our weariness, it's our doubts and our fears and our sin and our sickness and our our creatureliness. This This is any time that we bump up against suffering and calamity and persecution in this life and it exposes our weakness. That's the weakness he's talking about. And so the Spirit, Paul says, is given to us, he says, to help us in our weakness. But but notice there, verse 26, Paul gives us a very specific example of what kind of weakness he has in mind. Of how the Spirit helps us. Why do we need his help? Well, because we're weak. But notice verse 26, because we don't know what to pray for. Verse 26, notice, Paul says, the Spirit was given to you, Christian, to help you in your weakness by praying for you. Verse 26, for, so here's why the Spirit helps us and here's the weakness we have, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes, which just means he prays for us with groanings to deep for words. Or look at verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, notice, the Spirit helps us, Paul says, in our weakness by praying for us when we don't know what to pray for. John Stott says, our weakness here is our ignorance in prayer. That you and I sometimes we don't know what to pray for. Have you been there? Now, there are myriads of things that I know that I should pray for. Right? I mean, you, you too. All I need to do is sit down and open my Bible and there are 10,000 things that I know that I should be praying for. Right? I mean, I should pray that I would be a more godly husband. I should pray that I'd be a more patient father. I should pray that I'd be a more faithful pastor. I should pray that I'd grow in holiness. I I should pray for my small group. I should pray for uh, the gospel to go to the nations. I should pray for my lost neighbors. I mean, there, there are many things that I know and you know that you should pray for, right? But here, Paul says, there are some things that we don't know what to pray for or how we should pray. But this text tells us that there are things the Spirit prays for me that I don't know what to pray. So what are these things? What are these things that I don't know what to pray for or how to pray for as I ought? Well, notice there's a few clues Paul gives us here. Look look there. Clue number one, verse 26. He says, the Spirit helps us in, as we just said, our Weakness. So this is our human frailty. This is our limitations. This is our ignorance, right? There are things we don't know. There are things we can't see. There are things that we don't understand. We're weak. And clue number two, look there, verse 26. Paul says the Spirit helps us by praying, notice what he says, with groanings too deep for Words Does that ring a bell in your mind? That word groanings? It should. Connects us back, doesn't it? To exactly what we saw last week, right? The groanings of creation, verse 22. The groanings of the children of God, verse 23. So these prayers of the Spirit for me here are connected to my sufferings in this fallen world. And then finally, clue number three, look at verse 27. These, these things that we don't know what to pray or how to pray for as we ought, verse 27, Paul says, are according to the will of God. So let's put all those clues together then. What are the things we don't know what to pray for or how to pray that the Spirit helps us by praying for us? Well, I think that what Paul has in mind here is that there are times in the Christian life as, as we face sufferings living in this fallen world where it silences us. It shuts our mouths. There are times where as God's children, we, we are so distressed, we are we're so burdened, such suffering and anguish and turmoil and heartache that, that we can't even seem to utter a coherent prayer to God. Have you been there? Maybe you're there right now. Where in your suffering, it, it can sometimes seem so difficult to pray, can it? That, that maybe it's even impossible to pray. That really you don't know what to pray or how to pray. And in those times where you are so physically and emotionally and spiritually weary and worn down and weak that no words can even seem to come out of your mouth, have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that in life? Or you're in the midst of suffering and you want to pray for God's will to be done in a certain situation, in a certain, certain circumstance. Lord, if this, if this be your will, but, but you don't know what God's will might be. You don't know what would be the best outcome in a particular situation and so you don't know what to pray for because you don't want to pray the wrong thing and you're at a loss and we aren't even sure what we need or what other people need. We think we know. I mean, I can think of numerous examples of this. First, let me just give you one biblical one. If you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul himself experiences. In fact, he was given, if you remember, a thorn in the flesh. verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep me, he says, from becoming Conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So Paul, Paul had been given these miraculous visions. I mean, he was caught up in the third heaven. <laughs> what is that? And so in order to keep him from becoming proud and conceited, verse 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming Conceded. So, this was probably, no doubt, some kind of physical suffering, it would seem. But, clearly, it's also some kind of spiritual suffering, right? I mean, it's a messenger of Satan. And verse 8, notice Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he sh- that it should leave me. So, in other words, three times God Take this thorn. God, take this thorn. God, take this thorn. He prays that it would stop. And here's what Paul discovers. Guess what? He's been praying the wrong thing. Verse 9. But he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your power." weakness. Paul had been praying for the wrong thing. Hadn't he? He prayed for God to remove it, but that wasn't God's will for his life. Paul wanted to be delivered from the pain, but God actually wanted to deliver Paul from pride and self-sufficiency, and so he left the thorn there. He knew far better what Paul needed than what Paul thought he needed. Paul didn't need healing. He needed greater humility. And Paul says in verse 26, we do not know what we should pray as we ought. We're weak. And beloved, you and I, I think we experience this very same thing, don't we? Very same thing Paul did. Perhaps, let me give you some examples. And I don't mean these lightly. Perhaps someone you know, someone you love, maybe it's you, is physically sick. They are terminally ill with an aggressive form of cancer. What do you pray for? You pray that God would heal them? Because that's what we would want, right? Or do you pray that God would take them? To be with Christ is far better. Or do you pray that even he would leave them like this so that their enduring faith would be a testimony to the grace of God? What do you pray for? Or I was talking with a friend this past week who, who's walking through some unexpected financial hardship and doesn't know what he's to do. What, what do you pray for? God give it to him. God sustain them. God help them. Or maybe it's a wayward child who's fallen into a difficult circumstance in their life. And you wonder, do you pray for God to take them out of it? Do you ask him to leave them in it so that by those circumstances he might draw them to Christ? What, what do you pray for? Maybe it's some kind of disaster. It's some kind of devastation or persecution. Do you, do you pray to be removed from this trial? Or do you pray that you would remain in it and that your faith would be strengthened by it? What do you pray for? Sometimes we don't know what to pray, do we? And that's when Paul says that the Spirit is given to you for that very reason. In fact, he says it twice. Look there. Verse 26, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Which leads to question number two. How does the Spirit then help us in our weakness? How does he help us? And notice what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. He says, the Holy Spirit overcomes our weakness by praying for us. The Spirit is interceding for us. So God the Spirit is praying to God the Father on your behalf. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? That should blow your mind. God is praying to God for you. But not just that. In fact, look ahead with me for just a moment to verse 34, chapter 8. Verse 34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Same word, right? So, get this, Christian. Get this. You have two intercessors. Do you see that? You have have two intercessors. God the Son and God the Spirit. You have two of them. John Murray, he writes, the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. So you've got two intercessors, Christian. You have the intercessor in heaven, you have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you have the intercessor in your heart. You have the Holy Spirit as well. You have two intercessors. Verse 34, Christian, Jesus is interceding for you. Right now, he is standing before the Father in heaven right now at God's right hand and he is praying for you. At this very moment, he is pleading your case before the Father so that your sins will never condemn you before a holy God. We have an advocate before the Father. His wounds are pleading our forgiveness. His righteousness, it's, it's pleading our acceptance. And Christ, he's saying to the Father, they're mine. I've bought them. I purchased their salvation. They belong to me. And God the just, he is satisfied to look on him and pardon you. And so verse 34, Paul says, who is to condemn? And the answer, of course, is no one. Why? Because God the Son is praying to God the Father to keep you right now in the divine courtroom of heaven. But I'm already preaching verse 34, so let me go back. Because in verses 26 and 27, look what he says. You also have another intercessor. In your heart. He's in you. The Spirit living in you, He's interceding for you now as you suffer. And He is helping us in our weakness and in our suffering and in our ignorance and in our frailty by praying for us to the Father what we don't know what to pray for. And so when we're reduced to helplessness, the Spirit steps in. And he says, let me take it from here. Let me pray for you. And he makes his appeal to God on your behalf. How? What, what does that mean? Because that, that sounds rather strange. It sounds rather mystical, doesn't it? I mean, how does the Spirit in us intercede for us to the Father, in our weakness, when we don't know what to pray for. Well, Paul mentions two ways he does this. Look there. Verse verse 26. First, he says, The Spirit prays with our groanings. The Spirit prays with our groanings. Verse 26. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's what my translation says. More literally... These are wordless groanings. These are unspoken groanings. What does that mean? And who here is doing the groaning? Well, first, just let me say that these groanings here, these groanings are not the gift of tongues. Some have interpreted it that way. That's not what these groanings are. It simply cannot be that. Why? Well, because, first, these groanings are wordless groanings. And yet, the gift of tongues is a spoken language. But secondly, Romans 8 says that these groanings are experienced by every Christian. We all have these groanings. And yet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that not all Christians have the gift of tongues. We all groan. So this this groaning is not the gift of tongues. So then what are they? And who's doing them? Is it the spirit? Is it us? I think these groanings they are our groanings. They're your groanings, friend. Groanings in the midst of our suffering that I think what Paul means here they are they are prompted, they are directed, they are guided, they are perfectly communicated by the Spirit to the Father. So these are Spirit-inspired groanings. Now why do I say that? Well, well, did you notice, did you notice that there's a lot of groaning going on in chapter 8? I mean, look there. We saw it last week, didn't we? Verse 22, creation's groaning. Verse 23, children of God are groaning. And now, verse 26, the Spirit is groaning. There's a lot of groaning. Chapter 8. And what we saw last week, if you remember, is that these groanings, they're metaphorical groanings, aren't they? they, they the creation, it, it's not literally groaning, Paul's using a metaphor. They're a metaphor for the, for the longing experienced as we suffer in this fallen world. So they, these, are, these are wordless, heart moans deep in your soul, Christian, that are expressed as a result of suffering and weakness and corruption. So these these are our groanings. In fact, notice also where these groanings are happening. Verse 27, Paul says they're happening in our hearts. And yet, verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes with groaning. So what are these groanings then? Here's my best attempt. I mean, I was beating my head against the desk this week, trying to get my mind around this verse. Here's my best attempt. I think that these groanings are our groanings. They are our groanings in our moments of suffering and weakness where we don't know what to pray for. Where there is this wordless aching in our hearts. And yet the Spirit who is in us, he takes those groanings, Verse 26, he intercedes for us with our groanings and he shapes those groanings and he fashions those groanings and he discerns those groanings and he directs those groanings and in some mysterious, wordless language between the Spirit and the Father, remember perfect communication here between the Godhead the Spirit then communicates these unintelligible, wordless groanings perfectly and exactly and clearly. And he gives these groanings meaning in an intelligible way to the Father for us. Is that clear enough? (laughs) He intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And I know what you're thinking. This is strange, this is mystical, this is deep. Pastor, can't we just be more practical here? So let me just tell you how I found this personally applicable to me this week. This past week I was groaning. I was was burdened, My, my heart was aching. And not only because of things going on in my own life, but because of things going on in the life of this church and in your life. And this is not to sound like a pity party, so please don't let it. But ministry is hard. I don't think many people understand that until you're in it. Ministry is hard, it can be frustrating, it can be difficult, it can be weary, it can feel like the weight of responsibility is just laying on you. You don't have all the answers. You don't always know what to do. You don't always know how to pray. You don't always know how to encourage someone. And it can be extremely discouraging. And I find it extremely comforting to know that as mysterious as this passage is, I'm comforted to know that I am not God. (laughs) I don't know. But he knows. And the Spirit takes my ignorance and my groanings and he perfectly communicates them to the Father. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> we leads to the last glorious truth I think we see here before we turn to the final question. The Spirit not only prays with our groanings, but here, here, notice what he says. The Spirit prays according to the will of God for us. The Spirit prays according to the will of God for us. Look there, verse 27. And he who searches hearts, now who's that? Well, it's not the Spirit. He's not the subject here. Why? Well, because notice the very next phrase. He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. So who searches hearts? Who knows what's in the mind of the Spirit? This is God the Father. So he searches hearts, knows what's in the mind of the Spirit, because, he says, the Spirit intercedes for the saints, and then notice this next phrase, according to the will of God. So in verse 27, the Spirit, Paul says, intercedes for us, but this interceding, notice here, it isn't simply that the Spirit prays for us like, oh God, would you help him? Would you just do that for them? Would you help them? Just give them help. In reality, verse 27, here's what Paul's saying. The Spirit is actually praying prayers for us as if we were praying them that are in keeping with the will of God. The Spirit himself is actually praying prayers for us as if we were praying them in keeping with the will of God. He is praying things for you that you don't know to pray yourself. He is perfectly praying God's will for you. Verse 27, the Spirit knows the will of the Father and the Father knows the mind of the Spirit and so there is this unbroken, perfect, seamless communication where the Spirit takes your prayers, Christian, and He transforms your prayers to perfectly accord to the will of God. In our home, we have been working a lot on teaching our children how to clean and how to make their beds and how to put up clothes and how to dust and how to sweep and how to mop. And let's be honest, they try, but we know as parents how we want it done. (laughs) Right? Or at least I do, my type A personality. And so, what usually ends up happening most of the time is they try they do their best and then what? We usually have to come up behind them and clean them up and fix up what they've tried to do, right? And in the same way, beloved, what Paul is saying here is that there are times where we don't know what to pray. We don't know the will of God, and sometimes all we can do is we can cry out to him and our prayers they are messy aren't they? They are messy. And then we simply trust that the Spirit is gonna come up behind us and He's just gonna mop up all of our muddled, sort of messy prayers that the Spirit, He he takes our, our stumbling, uncertain needs and He brings them before God the Father in a way that perfectly accords to God's will. And God responds graciously to answer our needs perfectly. And He does So always for our good. And here's the amazing thing. That means that our prayers, translated by the Spirit, always receive a yes. God always says yes to God. The Spirit knows the will of God. He knows what we need in any given situation. And He perfectly knows and prays God's will for us. And God always answers God. So these verses, they are meant to encourage you. They're meant to sustain you. They are meant to give you hope in your weakness, in your suffering. Final question, we'll be done. Why should this matter to us? Why should this matter? I mean, as I said, this is some deep and weighty stuff, right? I mean, this is inter-Trinitarian stuff going on. Why does Paul tell us this? What's going on between the Father and the Spirit? Why does he want us to know this? I think it's because he doesn't want us to fail to apply this to our lives today in our suffering. So let me just give you five applications, very briefly. Number 1. God will give you more than you can handle and understand. God will give you more than you can handle and understand. You've probably heard this saying before, right? That God will never give you more than you can handle. And it's, it's, it's quoted like it's a Bible verse or something, okay? And, and I understand the heart behind that, but that's completely contrary to what these verses are teaching. <laughs> that in reality, there is times where he will give you more than you can handle and understand there will be things you can't handle. There will be things you don't understand. And if God didn't allow and purpose those things in your life, then you would never need to know these Spirit-inspired groanings for you. Right? So for those who are feeling like God has given you more than you can handle, you're, you're, you're you're in a deep darkness right now. Know that He is right there with you. Hear His voice in your groanings. And the Spirit is perfectly praying for you right now. Second application. God doesn't rebuke. He doesn't chastise us. He doesn't scold us for not being able to always discern His will. God does not rebuke us for not always knowing what His will is. Be encouraged, Christian, that you are not expected to always know what the will of God is in every respect. Yes, yes, listen, we, we can know clearly what God's revealed will is right here in this book. We can know it. But there are things about the will of God that are hidden from us. There are things about the will of God that we don't know, that we may even never know. And we don't know what to pray for. And this passage says, that's okay. That's okay. It's okay To say, Lord, I don't know what your will is right here. Why? Because there is one who perfectly knows the will of God and he is perfectly praying the will of God for you. In your groanings. Third application. That even in our weakness, even when we don't know what to pray for, that doesn't keep our situation from being prayed for perfectly. That even in our weakness, when we don't know what to pray for, that doesn't keep our situation from being prayed for perfectly. We will not always know what to pray for in every situation. The Apostle Paul didn't know what always to pray for in every situation. I showed you one in 2 Corinthians 12. Let me give you another one. Philippians chapter 1, Verse 22. Here's what Paul says. Uh, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So there's persecution and Paul didn't know what to pray for. Do I pray for deliverance from this persecution or do I pray for death? What should I pray for? And perhaps... Perhaps you're in a similar situation in your life and the encouragement this morning is the Spirit is praying perfectly God's will for you, which means this. God doesn't say, I'm going to sit here with my arms folded until you figure it out, until you know exactly what my will is. And until that happens, I'm doing nothing. No, the Spirit comes up behind our prayers and says, I know the will of God perfectly. I am taking your feeble prayers to God and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of rearrange them. I'm going to refashion them. I'm going to reshape them. And I'll go to the Father on your behalf and I'll ask Him to do what is in keeping with the will of God, asking Him for what you would have asked if you would know what I know. <laughs> Isn't that comforting? Fourth, we can be sure that God's perfect will will always be accomplished in our lives. We can be assured that God's perfect will will always be accomplished in our lives. No matter the situation, no matter your circumstance, this is the point of this text. This is why Paul wrote verses 26 and 27. He wants you to know that. Because why else would he have written it? Why does Paul find it helpful for suffering Christians to know about what's going on within the Godhead as the Spirit prays for you? Here's why. Because he wants us to know that God's will in our lives is not limited to what we can understand or what we can see or what we can express with our words. That God's will is being done despite our weaknesses and our sufferings. It's not limited by our weak prayers. He, His will cannot be frustrated by us. And this is why verse 28 can be true of us. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Of course they do. Of course they do because everything that happens in us or to us is the will of God brought on by the prayers of the Spirit. So let that encourage you, Christian, in the midst of your suffering. It's for your good. Last one. And this is where we just respond in weakness and we respond in humility and we respond in worship. God wants our weakness in prayer to magnify his power and grace. God wants our weakness in prayer to magnify his power and grace. This is a strange passage. God praying to God to do the will of God. But for me even, it raised a bigger question as I was thinking about this passage. Why, Why do we pray at all? I mean, if God knows all things perfectly, And if God's will is going to be accomplished, it can't be thwarted, then why does he ask us to pray? Well, I think this text teaches us that at least one reason, it's not the only reason, but one reason, is so that our weakness in prayer would magnify his grace and power. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. John fourteen, verse thirteen, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Second Corinthians twelve nine, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. The Christian life is not about growing stronger and stronger and stronger until we become self sufficient. No, the Christian life is about boasting in our weakness so that all glory would go to him. Let's pray. Father, in our weakness, Lord, we want to say this morning that we are thankful. We are thankful for the ministry and the gift of the Holy Spirit.